millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. Like millions of other people in our country, I've been saddened, anguished, in despair at the murder of Sarah Everard. And I think we're all in grief and soul-searching. And when I look at the response of my women friends who campaign against male violence against women, I feel anxious that I'm not doing enough to try and, you know, campaign against misogyny to try and change the society we live in so that women can feel safe in their daily lives. And that's why I've organised this podcast interview today with Michael Conroy, who is a man who, in his professional life, tries to change the system. He tries to do it through education, and he runs an organisation called Men at Work that works with young men, and they deal with the subject of power, misogyny sexism, control, masculinity, to try and send young men on a journey where they live more fulfilling lives and have more rewarding relationships. And I tried to tease a conversation out with Michael about what men can do further to end male violence against women. I hope you enjoy this week's episode of Persons of Interest. Michael Conroy, thank you for your time this morning. Hi, yeah, thank you, Tom. I appreciate this opportunity. We know each other through family connections, but we're actually here today to talk about a serious topic that I know is very dear to your heart. I mentioned the death of Sarah Everard in the intro. I know this is something that concerns you, Michael, as well. And one of the things I would like us to get out of our discussion in the next hour or so is the idea that there are perhaps some practical solutions for men who want to be part of the movement to end misogyny and violence against women. And that's really why I've got you on the podcast so quickly, because I know you run an organisation that contributes to that movement. Tell me about yourself and tell me about the organisation you run. As you say, I run an organisation called Men at Work, uh, which I set up about two years ago as a result of my uh, 15 or 16 years working in the education system, secondary mainly, which was increasingly uh, moving towards citizenship, well-being, PSHE, but also I was being asked to and wanted to move into kind of mentoring boys, young men, on themes about their behaviour, about their beliefs, about how that was panning out in school. And around five, six years ago, I came across material online, some speakers, some TED Talks from the States. And I just started to think I needed to be more systematic because ad hoc responses to what were clearly structural and societal and cultural issues deeply embedded are just not good enough. They're not, they don't, they're not fit for purpose and we need to go deeper. And you essentially, through that research you did five, six years ago, you recognised that the pressure on young men in particular to sort of 
act in a particularly stereotypical way mm. was not challenged in the education curriculum. And that's essentially the space you're in now. Have I got that right? No, I think that's right. Um, it is a focus which is missing, I think, currently in the curricula and in the approach to managing behaviour of boys and young men because they're seen as isolated incidents or as character defects or as aberrations of an individual. And like we need to have a more historical look at how we have arrived in a position where women and girls are routinely exposed to aggression and violence and harassment, which is, you know, based on their sex. And which means that men and boys are part of the group, whether they individually perpetrate acts of aggression or not. They're part of the group, um, you know, half of humanity which is the perpetrator group in the vast majority of cases. And that needs to set off real reflection. And I think that's something that hasn't really happened, certainly recently in any kind of educational moves. There are occasional researches into particular aspects, maybe like upskirting or reports on harassment on the way to school or whatever it may be. And all of that is absolutely valid, but it's the knitting together of those individual strands into a reflective process, which seems to be missing. And I've done quite a bit of research and there are not many holistic approaches. Great stuff happening here and there in pockets, absolutely no question. Whether that's work with gangs in inner cities or on county lines or on male mental health or working with perpetrators, there are lots of disparate activities, but I just feel that for young men, for teenagers, yeah. 12, 13, 14 upwards, a programme that allowed them to navigate their way to becoming safe people to be around, safe adults, safe men, but also healthy and happy men with good relationships, you know, based on mutual respect and trust, is a gap and we need to address that. I would certainly say at this point, I need to mention the word feminism and I need to mention the decades of feminist thought and critique and analysis that needs to be recognised. I, I wouldn't understand any of this stuff if I, if I wasn't avidly following uh, lots of feminist thinkers and writers. Uh, they are the trailblazers. They're the ones who understand most acutely and have the best analysis. And, and I thank them for that. So it's interesting you say that, Mickey, because the one thing that has struck me in the aftermath of Sarah's murder... There's obviously a huge outpouring of grief, frustration and anguish. And many of my former colleagues in Parliament, I'm thinking particularly of Jess Phillips, who's a very dear friend of mine who I admire greatly. Essentially, the challenge to men, men of power, is it's not good enough to lead by the example of your personal conduct you have to be part of the challenge to misogynistic behaviour. Mm. You know, we've gone too far now. You have to be active participants. I think that is the place of change, the, the self and the work that one needs to do on oneself. But as you allude to rightly, it's analogous with the you know, anti-racism work that needs to be done. It's not enough not to be a racist person or not to consider oneself as such one has to be actively engaged in trying to dismantle racist structures and supporting campaigns and, you know, large and small. So I think it's a twin track thing. I think oneself is always something we need to work on. Absolutely. I own that 100% in terms of myself. But also I think that one has to walk the walk. <laughs> uh, the, the danger in that is that one can hold oneself up as an example of the right thing to do rather than having the mindset of being committed to doing the work. And I think it's a, a two-pronged response that's required. That's why I'm very interested in the work you do because I don't know anyone else in the education system who is essentially providing a, a sort of structured programme where boys young men can understand the roots of misogyny and deconstruct perhaps some of those negative stereotypes, those negative expectations that are mm. projected onto them in a way that, you know, my generation 
probably had absolutely no idea about, where there was no comprehension that that, that was what was going on. Tell me a little bit about what the setting would be when you're actually sitting down with a group of boys and talking about some of these issues. Um, it would be a group of between six and ten young men, typically 14, 15, 16 years old, who would have been identified by perhaps members of staff in their school or their, their youth setting work, whatever it may be. They tend to be presenting problems for themselves or for others. That could be a wide range of issues, or it could be young men who pastoral staff, safeguarding staff are aware are living through domestic abuse at home in one form or another, and that there are concerns about their their safety, but also about their beliefs that are being shaped by what they see. So it could be any number of reasons that lead the young man to be in the room, but the general agreed objective of them being there is that they engage in a thoughtful, collaborative programme of five, six, seven weeks, whatever uh, suits that young person or that group, and that they're willing to participate and explore some of the thinking that maybe contributes to the problems that they're presenting for themselves or for others. It could be risk-taking behaviour. It could be, you know, substance abuse. It could be getting into fights. That's how it comes about. And then I would, you know, thank them for being there because often people can vote with their feet, but they tend not to, which is good. I would give a broad outline of what the scope of the sessions would be in terms of ways of avoiding risk to themselves, ways of developing their skills, ways of understanding perhaps some of the influences that they're subject to for good or for bad. And so hopefully it's a collaborative approach to saying this situation we're in or these situations we're in, how did we arrive at them? What are the factors influencing our reactions and responses? And what do we think about X? And the conversations cover a huge range. It could be stuff that's happening in the news. You know, we've talked about Trump and his behaviour, perhaps if it was on TV the night before. Or it could be just trying to unpick language and what words mean. Or it could be about particular incidents that one or more of the lads might have been involved in that have been brought to my attention. So it's different every time, which is what makes it absolutely fascinating work, work that I, I love doing. The chemistry is always different. The dynamics are always different. But the essential framework is the school or the organisation want those young men to step forward in a healthy, safe, respectful way for their benefit and for the benefit of those around them, whether that be family members, girls in their class or strangers out on the street. And we talk about the whole gamut of potential harms and risks to them and and that they might pose, as any of us could, as I could, uh, as a man, to women and girls in broader society. What I understand you've just described to me there is essentially the rudiments of male privilege and male power mm. and deconstructing that so they're aware that, of what it is, that it exists. Is that right? Uh, yes, that is part of it. Uh, obviously, the notion of male privilege can seem very strange to somebody who is disempowered socially or financially or has had a really difficult upbringing, but that doesn't invalidate the notion what we try and do is look at privilege as relative so that clearly a wealthy, powerful woman who might be a leader of a country, of whom there are some, or came from a rich family or royalty or whatever it may be, has some forms of privilege and entitlement, of course. But relative to the man in her position or you know their, their peers, they are subject to disadvantages to which he is not. And that goes all the way down to people who work in the supermarket, stacking shelves or wherever it may be. We do look at privilege as a thing which culture has given men over millennia, effectively. But to do so without acknowledging 
some of the multiple disadvantages that the young men that I've worked with face, I think would be really tone deaf and counterproductive because it would be suggesting that I don't think that they've had their difficulties in life and, and that is very far from the truth. I think privilege is a, is a important and necessary conversation but I do think it needs to be addressed in a non-dogmatic way that makes sense to the person that you're having the conversation with. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So Jess, I see in some of her interviews, is saying that actually the education system is a really good point to start yeah. you know, addressing misogyny at a national level. Hmm. I mean, I don't think I'm wrong, Michael. I, I, I genuinely, in 20 years in politics, I think you're the only person I've ever met that goes into a school setting and would take on these kind of themes with young men of that age. Uh, is there anyone else like you in the school system? There are people doing all kinds of stuff, but not particularly with a programme that would be in there over time. There are men who go in and who talk of their lived experiences, perhaps in the in the criminal justice system, perhaps ex-offenders of some kind, people who have been involved in gangs. I know there are fantastic groups working with gangs in some of our bigger cities, you know, London, Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow. And it's good to specialise, for sure. I just actually haven't come across anybody doing a programmatic approach to unpicking the foundations of misogynistic thoughts or actions. There may well be some, and I hope maybe as a result of this podcast we can get in touch and amplify each other. Yeah, but if we're trying to draw a list in our conversation, yeah. we could look at the national curriculum and see whether the sort of work you do could be replicated in other areas of the country, in other schools, or you know whether there's something the DfE could look at. Absolutely. The RSE framework that came from the Department for Education, that came live in September 2020, after a very difficult landing with, with the year of COVID, of course. Uh, paragraph 31 of that RSE framework. What, what's that acronym? Uh, Relationship Sex Education. Yeah, OK. Uh, it's the new updated set of expectations placed on high schools of topics and themes and approaches that they need really to have deployed by the time a young person leaves compulsory education. It basically says uh, all schools must be alive to sexism and misogyny and homophobia and have it at the forefront of their thinking and their practices. If I were a head teacher, I would be thinking, how do I do that? How do I do that exactly? With a focus okay. yeah. on young men. Okay. Because as we know, we, we cannot take a gender neutral approach to violence because we look at who are the perpetrators, who are the victims. Now, the perpetrators of violence against men are men in the majority. Yeah. Likewise, violence towards women, the perpetrators are majority men. Often, sadly, people who ought to love them in relationships or, you know, with their familial or, or partners. So to have an approach to violence doesn't really take us any further because we need to acknowledge the structural dynamics, which is why male violence against women and girls is a far better acronym than violence against women and girls, because that could be that could come from you know wild animals. Yeah. It doesn't tell us anything. Yeah. So if I was a head teacher and I was looking at that requirement, which is a very good requirement to make that 
at the forefront of school practice, so, you know, so they are alive to sexism and misogyny, I would be thinking, how do I deal with that in a way that's meaningful rather than blanket statements that we must all treat each other well? That's not really how you get to the roots of social phenomena of, of gendered and sexed violence. So ideally, the work that I do, it is intended to contribute to a whole panoply of other efforts and attempts and campaigns to unpick the thinking that makes violence probable or at least possible. And that is the that's the challenge. That's a noble challenge that you are doing great work in it. I'm going to try and move this out of the school setting. Mm. So I'm taking you away from your day job yeah. and talking to you about your kind of, uh, you know, the, the world you understand because I think your knowledge and experience allows you to talk on other areas of policy changes, particularly the criminal justice system, which has been in the news this weekend about how that deals with misogyny and male violence against women. Yeah. And obviously Parliament is debating legislation this week and my former colleague Jess Phillips pointed out at the weekend that it could be that people will end up with harsher sentences yeah. for defacing statues than being mm. violent to women. Um, tell me about your views on the criminal justice system. What can we do there to try and address this problem you know more at, at scale at a national level i would i would think there are experts to whom i will defer i know what i know but i know others know more i will briefly mention them if i may as an act of signposting sure organizations like center for women's justice are expert in how the law doesn't work for women in one form or another so I would absolutely flag people to check out their websites and their campaigns. There are some really meaningful petitions and uh, requests for judicial review happening. For example, Rachel Williams, who is a survivor of an attempted murder and who's a fearless and, and absolutely relentless campaigner on all kinds of fronts. So I would also point people to her. She set up uh, Stand Up To Domestic Abuse, S-U-T-D-A. Uh, take my hat off to Rachel, absolutely. Karen Ingala smith who set up Counting Dead Women and produces the femicide list the list of murdered women that Jess Phillips reads in Parliament. Karen's yeah. annual work is producing that list. Absolute, you know, tireless, fearless women, one and all. So I'd take my hat off to them. And they are the experts in the granular ways in which the law doesn't work for women. And I absolutely apologise to all the other brilliant <laughs> names that I haven't mentioned, but they're at the forefront just at the moment of my mind. One thing that I have noticed that Rachel says, Rachel Williams says, is that a shockingly low number of judges and I think solicitors, barristers have training, specific training in domestic abuse. There are lots of things that I think I take for granted and then continue to be shocked are not the case. One of them is that you would imagine judges, senior police officers and you know people involved in the legal system per se had proper and appropriate and in-depth training on things like coercive control, financial control, financial abuse, but it's not the case. So there is a wealth of knowledge which is lacking and in its place is the result of decades or centuries of patriarchal control. So I would say get everybody, decision makers at all stages of the criminal justice system trained by sector experts in what abuse looks like before we get to the awful stage of fatalities. Jane Monckton-Smith, Professor Jane Monckton-Smith at Gloucester University is an absolute expert and she developed an eight-step timeline feeding back from domestic homicide reviews on really clear regular patterns of behaviour often around control and isolating you know, female partner from family and friends. And they are probably world experts in this stuff, to be honest, and I would absolutely urge anybody to check any of these out. They are the experts. If I could just jump in on that, Mickey, because you mentioned control a few times, and it, it is an area I want to discuss with you. In my time as an MP, 
I once welcomed Sandra Hawley to my constituency in West Bromwich where we had a support group for women who had survived domestic violence. Mm. Uh, And Sandra wrote the book, Power and Control, with the subhead, Mm. Why Charming Men Can Make Dangerous Lovers. Yeah. And, you know, I was a young MP at the time. I remember being sort of quite challenged by the title, let alone the content in there. Mm. And when Sandra met some of my constituents... You know, there was a woman there who had suffered an extreme period of profound violence, such that her partner had had a long custodial sentence. And he walked out of the prison and she welcomed him back. Yeah. And so this idea of coercion and control was kind of, you know, something that sits as part of the debate that I'm not entirely certain everyone quite understands. Uh I think you help young men understand what is appropriate control and what is inappropriate control. We do, yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, firstly, coercive control became law, I believe it was 2015, as a result of much campaigning by women. And it was a way to recognise that violence is not always physical and that lives can be impaired, blighted or ruined by concerted campaigns of undermining, of gaslighting, of intentional isolation, which come together under the banner of coercive control. Sorry to jump in, to explain what gaslighting means. Gaslighting comes from a film in the 1940s about a man who was treating his wife abysmally. He was trying to make her feel that she was going mad. He told her things that she knew were real, weren't really, said, uh, you know, there, there wasn't a noise, there was a noise. It, it took lots of forms, but essentially it was a campaign to break the spirit and mind of another person, somebody who you have taken to pieces and whose personhood and whose autonomy you have set out to destroy, to put them at your mercy, effectively. The act of gaslighting is to to make people think that they're wrong when they're right in all kinds of ways. And that's part of coercive control, uh, a really... Great international expert in that is Dr. Evan Stark, E-V-A-N-S-T-A-R-K. He's written lots of articles and books on coercive control, but it's something that marks almost all cases of domestic murders, even though there seems to be no, you know, they in the newspapers, the headlines are surprise, a pillar of the community, gentle giant, you know, whatever it is, these ways of describing the typically male perpetrator. Often the stories emerge in the domestic homicide review or from testimony of friends and family that that was a very carefully controlled and orchestrated image. And behind that was a whole lifetime perhaps or a relationship time of concerted attempts to destroy the humanity of the female partner and it is utterly heartbreaking to read you know real life stories and to meet people who've lived through that but really important that we know it is there and really important therefore that we do what we can to minimize it taking root in the mindset of a of a young man who might become a perpetrator of that. But sadly, you know, by the age 15, 16, 17, habits of control via use of phone, you know, whether it's trackers or whether it's sending three, four, 500 text messages or WhatsApps, whatever it may be, demanding an instant answer as a way to train somebody to orientate their entire life towards pleasing the perpetrator so that's the kind of broad brush description of coercive control let me test this out a bit more with you we can probably all point to you know unhealthy relationships we've seen in those around us where there is a degree of coercive Mm. control being deployed by the male perhaps not understood fully when you're talking to a 15 year old about control Are they conscious that their behaviour is controlling or is it just they think they're winning arguments? You know, tell me a little bit about how you make them aware that their behaviour is unusual, unnatural. Well, uh, we start off by establishing absolute fundamentals and some things in life we do control. Every one of us controls something at some point in the day, whether it be the flow of electricity or the heat in the house. We try and control 
traffic, we try and control pollution. So establishing the notion that some forms of control are legitimate and valid is a really good way in, and I think probably an essential way in, to take people collectively towards a point that then we say, okay, the things that we've established are legitimate and valid to control, and in fact even this essential in some cases, they're not people. So we've got a gulf here, we've got things, we've got systems that we can exercise legitimate control over, and we talk about why that might be and how it might be in everybody's benefit to do that. For example, with you know viruses or disease, we've had an interesting discussion at that point, but then we arrive at the point, so what about people? What is there about people, if anything at all, that we need to control? And so we talk about parenthood or looking after people um, for whom we take a lot of responsibility, whether they're babies or incapacitated, where we, we might be acting on their behalf. But then we move on again and say, so a partner, what kind of control, you know, what what is legitimate? Is anything legitimate? Because they're not systems, they're not animals, they're not really ill, they're not babies, they're fully functioning autonomous human beings so you know is it appropriate in any way shape or form and, and that is where the conversation starts because then we start to see the split between the human and the non-human or the person and the object and the person and the system the fundamental thread through the program is about the humanization of ourselves as men and of women as human beings I'm really interested to see how this goes. Are there kind of light bulb moments in these group discussions or is it more gradual? I mean, you know, you're raising consciousness there, aren't you? That's the aim. How does that go at the end of the session? It's really interesting because the light bulbs might be different in the same group because it might be about recognising their behaviour or it might be recognising behaviour towards them, potentially, uh, by their peers even. But it could be that they're starting to reflect on how their family works or their extended family. And it's a really delicate balance between not pulling punches, but being aware that you're in the presence of really complex young human beings who may have had all kinds of trauma. They may be going through all kinds of trauma yeah. and difficulty and that the conversations that we have may bring a lot to the fore, which is why obviously the schools or the, the setting, all the safeguarding staff need to be absolutely on board and it's a collaborative conversation. There are light bulb moments and often people blurt out anecdotes with names. I keep saying, sorry, no names, you know, don't give us any details about your yeah. story, but tell us a story that is about something that's to do with you, if you like, or we can invent a third party name. Yeah. And explore all angles of it it's it's a bit like if you can do freeze frame in 3d and you freeze a situation and we try and kind of mentally walk around it and look at it from all angles and say well what's his motivation for behaving this way what does he get out of it because clearly people do get things out of being you know coercive controller or a bully they do otherwise what would be the point they they feel that they get something out of it and then we break down those gains and and then weigh them against the losses for them, but also, of course, for the for the victim of their behaviour. So light bulbs, yes, do occur, but they may not be blanket or uniform. They could have three or four different light bulbs in a session or a group because hopefully, and I think this is the case, they're looking at their own lives while they're talking about what we're talking about in the room. So their minds are, are traveling here and there, which is fascinating to see. And often you have follow-up conversations months or even years later in some cases, and that can be very re rewarding when they kind of cast their mind back to something that was sparked in a session or a conversation. When they come to their reflections, I mean, they must use a lot of media stereotypes to build their view. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to draw you into a, a national picture again now. Again, over the weekend, one of the conversations that uh, has really struck me is, you know, the way some media channels, including reputable ones like The Beeb, report violence against women. Yeah. But media stereotypes of women and social media stereotypes 
and reporting of violence? How does that play out in the classroom and what do you think we can do to try and deal with some of that? Well, firstly, I think we've got an embedded culture of victim blaming and making the perpetrator invisible, whether it be street harassment or you know intimate partner abuse, of looking at the woman or girl and saying, what was she doing? What was she wearing? Why was she there? That was very late. I wouldn't walk there. All of that stuff just sort of pours out because that's what we're trying to do over centuries. You know, family passes on their worldview and friends' networks pass that on, and it, it is just culturally embedded. Not uniformly, but it's a very strong and persistent thread historically. And the media being an outgrowth of culture and also a shaper of culture is both reflecting that and creating it for the next generation. Newspapers still now use victim-blaming language, and it might not look like it, but if we break down some typical sentences of a man who's killed his wife, mostly they start with his job. And then, right at the end of the sentence, is, is the woman. So, millionaire jeweller in mansion stabs wife. And that iterates our cultural values. It sets out the important first, the unimportant last. In re- this is in really broad terms. But once you start looking at those formulas and the front-loading of status and the tailing away of attention at the end of a paragraph or a sentence, you can't unsee it. It's really shocking. It's a, a trope, a cultural trope, for describing a man who's chosen to kill a woman. So journalists and editors could do a lot more in this regard. Hugely more, yeah. I mean, Ipso have guidelines. There are guidelines. They exist. It's just that they're not adhered to. Hi, this is Tom from the future. Just to say that IPSO stands for the Independent Press Standards Organisation. It's one of the bodies that is out there to try and maintain standards of journalism in Britain's newspapers. There is best practice. There's all kinds of uh, campaigns and groups and individuals who routinely remind them of their obligations. But uh, it might come as no surprise to you or to any other person listening to this that newspapers have the power to ignore rules yeah but i think on this one i mean you, you know you there's always the, the worst successes of the tabloid press but you, there was a thing this weekend about the bbc describing how you know i think it said young woman headbutts man in alleyway I, I, i've got i can't get the entire phraseology right yeah. but i mean essentially this woman had been attacked uh, and the story was how yeah. she'd she, she'd headbutted a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was defending herself from a violent attack. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot more that could be done there. I think, isn't there? I think in the same way I was talking about the training of the judiciary and and barristers and senior police. Absolutely, newspaper media editors, journalists. It really ought to be part of their training rather than a begrudging response to a complaint. Huge amount to do there. They do have guidelines, but often they choose to use the clickbait or something that comes from their worldview uh, until challenged. And they, and they might change a headline, you know, it's a quick job to change a headline, but the damage is done because a million people have seen loving dad torches family you know that that is literally one from australia last year a guy locked his three kids and his wife in the car and he set and he blew it up and he was described as a loving dad now in no sane world is that love exactly so we just need to really destroy those linguistic habits because they are the propaganda for violence effectively we're about three quarters of an hour in Michael, yeah, we've done a lot about schools and some of the good work going on and perhaps some opportunities for how that can be scaled. You've generously given reform of the criminal justice system to your colleagues in the movement, but given as a flavour of some of the things that uh, are deficient and can be done. And we've talked a little bit about journalism. What are the other things? Remember, we want to get at the end here. I'm trying to draw up a list. Mm. What other things can men do to be part of the fight against misogyny and male violence against women? Where do you think there are structural changes required? What can we do in our own lives? In our own lives, we can try to raise children, if we have them, in egalitarian ways, whether that is childcare, 
domestic arrangements, things that seem banal and perhaps unrelated to violence, but violence sits on top of an awful lot of other stuff. And that other stuff is a kind of separation of the male from the female or, you know, I think the man job and the woman job, to quote a recent prime minister, <laughs> that's your area, this is my area. Now, those kind of assumptions still persist. So I think consciously and intentionally raising boys to celebrate their creativity, their gentleness, their thoughtfulness, absolutely, and also giving girls the opportunity to be uh, whatever they want to be you know, and do whatever they want to do. It really is all-encompassing. So to break down these kind of arbitrary and illogical separations of who should do what and how, everybody can do that. Everybody can challenge assumptions. Everybody can say, no, that's nonsense. Why do we have phrases like family man but not family woman? Yeah, okay. And they seem tiny, but I think just questioning phrases questioning language that's true family man is considered the unusual male the one that actually spends more time with his kids than others it's praise because the norm it suggests is not to do that yeah but there is no praise for woman there is no equivalent i talk about that kind of stuff as well in the sessions about language yeah you know like an english man's home is his castle yeah what, what about the woman <laughs> where's her castle yeah and where is the woman in fact those kinds of things you don't need special training for that it's just being alive to language and what the language encodes and reinforces might be. Men, 100%, don't watch porn, don't consume it. This is me just speaking directly. You asked me a direct question, yeah. I'm answering it directly. Yeah, yeah. Porn is filmed rape. Do you talk about pornography in your training? Yeah, yeah, absolutely we do, yeah. We've had some really eye-opening conversations. It's part of a section that I call People Not Objects. Yeah. Because at the bottom of it is if we teach ourselves, teach our sons to see women as less than fully autonomous human beings, then yeah. anything bad can flow from that. There is no limit, as we see you know, in this context that we're discussing, obviously, with... Uh, the recent murder in London, but all the other murders yeah. every day in every city and town. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say porn is not just your fantasy and your your sexual release. It's someone's life and somebody's uh, context. And it's not for you to sustain that with your money. It's, I, I absolutely oppose it entirely. Likewise for prostitution, I'm, I'm totally convinced that no civilised society could permit the purchase of another person to which the purchased person becomes subject to the will and instruction of the purchaser i just i don't find that correlates with uh civilized humanity yeah others disagree and very vocally yeah conversations between men we, uh, we shouldn't let each other off the hook if we start talking about women as you know i won't list the derogatory slurs there are too many but not to let things pass fundamentally. Yeah. Just think, if I let this pass, I am agreeing with it. This is one issue that has been raised, I think, a lot in the recent discussions, isn't it? About men of good heart sitting back. There are more that men can do to challenge the behaviour of their male friends and for it to be expected that they do rather yeah. than unusual that they do. Yeah. These are kind of really rudimentary questions here, Michael. But, you know, you sit in a pub with a group of mates and there's always one, you know, sort of laughy, jokey, derogatory comments. Yeah. There's a lot men can do in that regard, aren't there? Because it's, it's every day, this, isn't it? Absolutely. It's at work, it's online, it's everywhere that men are together expressing their worldview and their values about women there can be challenge and yes it can be really difficult and, and uncomfortable and even sometimes it can be dangerous you know obviously stepping in as a bystander in any situation you do have to weigh up risk to oneself but at the same time you have to weigh up what is the cost of me not saying or not doing that thing yeah so I would say real friends can have real conversations, Yeah, which seems like a banal truism, but if one is a close friend with somebody, 
then they owe it to each other in a sense to be truthful and to be honest and say, you know what, that's not me. I don't think that. Why do you say that? Do you not think that's just bullshit? That was, yeah. That's just something you say. Why, why are we doing it? Yeah. Are there any organisations that support men who want to actually do more? You know, you're a concerned dad. You've been following this national debate on your social media channels. You try and live a respectful life for those around you, but you want to do more. Yeah. Where can men go? to actually get authoritative advice about how you challenge a sexist friend or what are the issues in society that need challenge? That's, that's a really good question. That's a really good question because the change that we want will come when that dissipated amount of goodwill is brought together in an articulated way with particular aims that can take us forward. So having a million blokes like that that you've just said they're good people they're nice they're not abusive how do we coordinate and articulate that so that it translates into cultural shift that's a really fundamental question i I think we need to be putting pressure on the judiciary putting pressure on the police putting pressure on politicians supporting women's campaigns amplifying their voices challenging cuts to refuges heavy lifting, dirty work, which needs doing it urgently. If we could add the voices of a half a million or a million or two million men who want to do good work and make them aware of these issues and campaigns currently, then that hopefully would be a big step forward. And we are setting up a campaign group which focuses on action against male violence rather than symbolic gestures. I think there may be groups one might find online who facilitate symbolic gestures, uh, and I don't think symbolic gestures are what is needed. Yeah. But as it stands, being a good person is a damn good start. Being non-abusive is a damn good start. Treating women as fully equal human beings is a damn good start and essential. But then what? How do we knit that together? How do we create a movement? What can we do that makes this about action and not about words? I think there's a lot of men out there who, whether rightly or wrongly, feel a little bit intimidated by the topic area in the sense that, you know, they find the language a bit hard to understand. Do some reading. Get educated. That, That is... You do it on your own. You don't have to make a fool of yourself. You don't have to wade into debates that you don't feel confident about. Just find out. Do some heavy lifting (laughs) and and then feel more confident in taking part in some discussions and campaigns. Well, Michael, you have definitely uh, helped the listeners of this podcast today. I feel very anguished about what's going on. Mm. You know, maybe this week has been one week where I've regretted standing down from Parliament because I think I would have wanted to spend a lot more time trying to deal with some of these big issues that the country are facing to do with Mm. male violence against women. And um, you've dedicated many recent years of your life trying to get to the root of it. You know, I'm grateful to you and I admire what you do and I hope if there are any head teachers that are worried about um, their obligations in the new national curriculum, then you might be able to guide them along the way as well in the months and years ahead. I'd be very happy. So thank you very much for your time today. I I know you're in demand and I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Cheers. So that was Michael Conroy. I'd go as far to say that I think he's a pioneer in his field in, in the way that power relationships in society are taught to young men in the classroom. We touched on how the national curriculum can be used to teach young men about their role in ending male violence against women and how we can end coercive behaviour and misogyny. He was generous to talk about the criminal justice system and the experts that have been warning how the criminal justice system needs to change if it is going to really address male violence against women at a systemic level. Like many conversations I had of persons of interest, um, we touched on journalism and the way that violence against women is reported, and I think there's now almost universal recognition that that needs to change, whether it be through training, people calling out, journalists um, 
using poor language uh, or even sort of asking editors and the sort of trade bodies in the industry to do more to try and make sure that they're not reinforcing stereotypes. And then we had a slightly more imprecise but an interesting conversation about men who want to play a greater role in fighting misogyny and male violence against women. How do they educate themselves? Are they, you know, how can they play a role in their families, their communities, uh, their workplaces to call it out amongst their own social grouping? And Michael alluded to the fact that there may be a new organisation being formed to do that, and I welcome that. Before that organisation exists, um, Michael referred to a lot of experts and a lot of organisations that may be able to help men in particular educate themselves. Um, and I think in these show notes, we'll put a, spend a bit of time in trying to make sure that you get access to the resources that you referred to in the interview. And I hope you find that of use. So I hope you found this special edition of Persons of Interest interesting and a useful contribution to the debate about how men can play their role in fighting male violence against women. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producer is Lucy Pullin. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Podmonkey. The music is by Tom Gray. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.